0: West Mount, we continue with that great chorus. Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. If you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in front of you, in the rack in front of you, you'll see one there. Romans 12. That's where we will continue this morning. I trust, as even that refrain is still ringing in our ears, the last notes. I trust each Lord's Day morning we give active thought to our spiritual songs. I want you to consider as we open this morning the truth that we just chorused together. Listen, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. The wrong is strong, is it not? But God rules. And that means, as we also sung, this is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. God is the ruler yet. Means this is his world. And Jesus' death reconciled this world. Back to heaven, made one. And that final reconciliation, that consummation is coming. Now consider with me thus, one recurring problem we have personally is made clear then in light of that truth that we just sung. What is that? Our response and repayment to the strong wrong, to the evil done to us as we consider our weeks and our lives is is not in line with that truth, is it? We act in our response to evil as if evil is winning. We fret as if the outcome isn't sure, don't we? The response to wrong in this world, and here really is where we're at in Romans 12, the response to strong wrong done to us, our response, is not to respond with more wrong, retaliation, and repaying evil with more evil. That is like the forest fire, right? And the firefighters descend, and instead in those hoses there's water. Those hoses are filled with kerosene and just spraying the fire with more kerosene. That's what it's like. Instead, we must respond and repay with actions that are in concert with the truth that we just sung, that this is our Father's world. And though it is cursed and broken now, Jesus Christ, the Son, has blessed it by his death. Colossians 1, 19-20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, listen, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace secured through Christ. But it is true, beloved, the current daily battle is not done. The fullness of reconciliation is coming, but until then, strong evil abounds. And that is why to Rome and to Westmount, Paul gave these words. Look with me in verse 14 This morning, Lord, as we do face strong wrong, we face evil and we know it abounds. Lord, help us to respond as we ought in light of the truth that we have sung, that we have read, that we know. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Overcome evil with good. Such is the marching order in our daily battle. When persecuted, what? Bless. Repay evil with honor. Your enemy is hungry, feed him. See it. And as we said last week, that is gospel living in an evil world. And it is our command, beloved. It's our command to do this. We opened with a survey of the consistent response of blessing and good. Remember by the saints of old, Joseph, David, Daniel, Stephen, Paul, Silas. We could go on and on. All those responses, here it is, to personal evil from those saints Not unlike their Savior, right? Very much like Jesus. Each one not repaying evil with evil, but with good and blessing. Like Christ and precisely in accord with, verse 14, see it, and the first point that we covered last week, our appropriate response. Look again at it. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. One aspect of this verse, as we just briefly recap, we need to make sure that we're clear on one aspect of this verse, beloved, is you, is you. It does not say bless those who persecute, period, it says what? Bless those who persecute you. This is not a command, this is important, this is not a command to respond to the evil done to a society or a nation. Do You see, that's not what is in view here. Listen, and again for clarity, West Mound, we stand up to evil invaders. We do not blindly obey laws that are mandating sin. We need our military, and when sin is law, we resist that. So let's make sure we're clear on that. What we're saying here, and what is Paul is pointing to in verse 14, this is how you respond, saint, when evil personally is done to you, when you are wrong. Last week, recall, these verses simply echoed and pointed us to our Savior. Again, an important recap. Remember the command. Remember Christ and what he taught his disciples. Matthew 5.39, do not resist the one who is evil. And then he said this in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And brothers and sisters, not only we remember the command, we remember the cross. Remember the blessing from the cross on enemies, Luke 23, 34. Father, what? Forgive them. That is the Christian's appropriate response. Then we looked at our second point, again by way of recap. Look at verse 17, appropriate repayment. Appropriate repayment. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, this is appropriate repayment when evil comes upon us. Repayment that's appropriate does not just repay evil for evil passively, but appropriate repayment actively looks to carry out what is honorable. See the word. And most simply, as we covered, this is repayment that always seeks the right thing. Return the ox. Return the item. Hold the tongue. Spare the life. Repay with good. First Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another And to everyone. That is inside and outside the church. And we saw last week that appropriate repayment is not just abstaining from an evil response or even just carrying out what is honorable. But in the face of evil, an appropriate repayment seeks peace. Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible means what? It's not always possible, is it? See, Daniel. It's not always possible. So far as it depends on you means bring peace, beloved, that's in your control. As a Christian, that's a lot of peace, right? And maybe you're called to bring a lot of peace today. But it's possible, beloved, no matter what the evil assaulting you is. Because we have, Romans 5, 1, peace with God. We have peace with God. Thus, with peace received, we have peace to herald and peace to give, as peaceful ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Again, we just consider Christ. We must keep considering Christ in these commands. Remember some of his final words recorded in John 20, final actions, final words. Remember this, when he appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Do you remember what he said? Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That is a peaceful commission from our Lord. Now, That should be enough, right, as we recap and consider that. The teaching, the example, and the commission of our Lord. And we need to say, to start today, it is enough. All we need to respond right is in Jesus Christ. All we need to respond right in this life is in Jesus Christ. We have his ministry, we have his life, we have his example, and we have his divine instruction. Consider it with me. That's a lot. Yet, our gracious God not only gives us more, but he always gives us more. And here he has done so in this text. What we will see in Romans 12 now as we land this chapter is not a new word to encourage. It's a fortification for the commands. Maybe for some of you this morning, the very tough commands that God has given. Paul is going to take us back to the Old Testament word. And what we will see is the command to overcome evil with good. We're going to see something more, and I suppose it's going to challenge us this morning. We're going to see the basis, the the, this is why. He's going to remind us, New Testament saints, of an old truth, that this is why you can overcome evil. And that foundation, as we carry on, is our next point, which is more like a perspective. Thirdly, appropriate revenge. Appropriate revenge. And we now return to verse 19. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul addresses, look at the term there. He uses it often, and it's always intentional when he uses it. The beloved. He's talking about hard things, vengeance and avenging yourselves. But look what he says. Beloved, this is very, very important for what he's going to unpack here. You are the loved by God. You are the beloved, those reconciled to God. In other words, don't forget it. It's as if to remind you, Christian, you were once an enemy, but now you're called what? Beloved. In light of that truth, Paul says, never avenge yourselves. Do You see that? Yourselves. Again, what's in view here is personal retaliation, thoughts of personal revenge. This is the stuff of personal offense. This is the speaking of avenging yourself, and this is so key. This is really the key that's going to unlock these next few verses for us, and understanding why and where Paul goes to in the Old Testament. Let's pause and be reminded of personal offense. We're all over personal offense, aren't we? Nothing activates our flesh more than a personal offense. Is that not true? Nothing activates, Nothing gets us going than the personal offense. In fact, the word avenge there speaks to what's being activated in our flesh in verse 19. Look at it. We might want to turn, and what's the first thing we say in our flesh when we're offended? They need to get what's coming to them. We may not say it so overtly, right? Well, we have our own economy of tit-for-tat. Oh, yeah? Right? We want to personally avenge, and within that is this fleshly version, and this is right there, pulls out the sense of the word punishment, to exact vengeance, almost the legal, judicial sense. Our flesh says, I've got this one. I'm putting on the judge's robe, and I've got it. When we are wronged, when we are unjustly treated, we pull out our own gavels, right? Right? And it's all, in that moment of offense, it's all about justice for us. But what we must see here, beloved, and this readies us again for the verses ahead, the Bible never calls us personally, that's key, personally, to take matters into our own hands. You'll not see the Bible say that. For civil injustice, there was the law in Israel. It brokered all manner of justice in life, and we looked at that in Exodus. And today, in a democratic society, not a theocracy like you see in the Old Testament, in a democratic society, we have civil laws and leaders. Next week, timely, we will begin to look at that as we turn to Romans 13. And I trust with you, clear up much confusion about these verses then and now. What is important then to grasp first and foremost here, and this is the key, so let's note this. Is that evil repayment? Evil repayment is always confined to those with the authority to bring it. Does that make sense? Evil repayment is always confined only to those with authority to bring it. Hopefully, you're starting to think okay, I see it in Israel. Maybe you see it today as you think about the chapter ahead. In society, whether it's Israel or today, evil is repaid appropriately. And here it is, by the authorities that God has instituted. When you're talking about daily living. Daily living. Again, more on that next week. The key for us this week to close Romans 12 is this. Taking vengeance for yourself is not permitted. We do not retaliate. Now the question is why. If God is a God for justice, if we are justified, you say, why? Why? Well, we keep reading verse 19 but leave it, what is it? Vengeance, leave vengeance, to the wrath of God. Do you see that? Beloved, the reason we do not avenge evil done to us is simply this, is because God will, right? The reason we don't do it is because God will, and it's his domain to do that. We, we never avenge ourselves, saints. We leave it, says the text, to the wrath, God's wrath. God will avenge, listen, not just evil, but all evil. The strong evil, the ever-present evil, the evil that seems to abound today, God will deal with it. But remember, the believer is called to live this life in our Father's world with that present patient awareness. A day is coming, the believer says this every day, a day is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans two, verse five. And saints we are saved by Christ from that coming wrath of God. Romans five, verse nine. And what's we also have learned and know that God endures with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for coming destruction. We learn that too, Romans nine, twenty-two. Beloved, wrath is coming. God's wrath. And that is why, that is why, or the foundational reason why, we can forsake our wrath. Well, let's present a second practical. I want you to consider your wrath for a moment. Think about your flesh activations when you've been wronged. I want you to do this with me. Think about it for a moment. When you put on the judge's robe and you get your gavel out and you pull out your justice book. What would be our wrath anyway? I want you to think with me. Okay, so what is that? What is our wrath anyway? Our wrath is evil. How do we say that? We're not yet glorified, are we? So that means whatever way we're bringing wrath in our vengeance, it's going to be tainted and stained with sin, isn't it? We would bring wrath in all its fleshly vibrance, filled and saturated with self-righteousness, we cannot meet wrath in the only way it's our evil in the only way it's deserved, with pure wrath. We can't do that. We cannot bring our wrath in the way true evil deserves. True evil, pure evil, deserves perfect righteous indignation. And you and I, brother and sister, do not have that. So again, our attempts at wrath, whatever pittance, then it turns out, they are, are only making matters worse. We're actually repaying evil for evil, no matter how well intended we are to be our own just executioners. Church, we are helped in our efforts, listen, to withhold personal vengeance here. Yes, you were wronged. We all get it with each other, don't we? We know it. You were wronged personally. But remember a couple of things this text teaches us that will help us. Just two things. Number one. The Bible never says evil will not be dealt with. Have you thought about that? I hear it so often, I say it myself. They're getting away with it. The Bible never says the evil will get away with it. But our flesh wants us to think that they are, because we live so much in the temporary, don't we? The Bible never says evil will not be dealt with. The issue is not will it be dealt with. The issue is who's going to deal with it. You see that? Secondly, the Bible says that revenge is just not for you and I to carry out. It's not our domain, it's to be left to God. The text this morning cannot be clearer than that, right? Leave it to the wrath, the wrath of God. Beloved, listen, we will all succumb to personal vengeance if we do not constantly. Keep in mind, this is the renewing of the mind, keep this in mind, the fact that that a day is coming when the wrath of God will avenge all evil, if you don't keep that in mind, you will succumb to personal vengeance. You will. All. Every time. And that brings us to a basic understanding about revenge that we often miss. Back to verse 19. Look at it with me. For it is written. You see this, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance, says God, is whose? Mine, he says. Vengeance is not our possession, beloved. Now, Paul is referencing an Old Testament text here. Now, before we turn there, there's all manner of things we may think in our minds. I know even as I was getting into this text, I thought of Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned, right? There's all manner of things. God sets the rules. The transgression is against him. There are many things Paul could go to here. but This is what is going to challenge us this morning. He's going to go to a place in the Old Testament... That we're not expecting him to go, and to enemies that we're not expecting. This is very, very important. So let's turn there. He's going to go to Deuteronomy 32, but we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 31 to get the context here. For it is written, again, Paul, this is the cue that he's going to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 31. Again, we're just going to back it up and get some context here. Moses, the context here is Moses is passing the baton, and of course we know to who? Joshua, the young military general that's going to take the second generation into the promised land. We see that Moses summoned Joshua, verse 7, in the sight of all Israel. By the way, that's a good, healthy transition Then let's pick it up in verse 9. Moses wrote this law, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Now that's the charge, right? Verse 12, look carefully, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones in a sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. And you know how Israel did with that, don't you, Right? This right away, we see this is the marching order to the new military general. Teach that. Read the law so that they learn how to submit to it. In verse 14, we will see that he is commissioned. That's the actual commission. Well, let's pick up very closely. We're going to go down to verse 16 and look very carefully. We're going to read down to 22. This is the context of where Paul is going to. Look very carefully. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. This is no cheerful exchange, is it? What's he saying to them? I'm asking you to do something and you won't do it. Do you see that? Keep reading. Then my anger, verse 17, will be kindled. My anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I'll forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that purpose they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. Notice the misdiagnosis there. We continue verse 18. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done. Because they've turned to other gods. Here's the thing. What's coming upon them is because of Israel. I'm charging them to do something they will not do. And of course, we learned without a circumcised heart, they can't do it. And this is the point, right? This is where Paul is taking us to this context. So all of that sets the table. Let's go to 21. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song, interesting. This is what's going to happen. They can't do it. Here's a song. You say, wow, a song. She'll confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know... What they're inclined to do, even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Do you see what's going on here? Very simply. This song is going to testify to the sovereignty of God as you go into the land. You have the instruction, you have the law, but you don't have the heart. Something is broken there to do the thing. You're going to say it's because God's not with us. You've misdiagnosed the problem. The problem is your heart. The problem is your disobedience. And here's the good news. Yahweh says, I'm going to do something about that. Think about this when we think about discipline and correction. We recognize something has to happen so we get back on track. This is, this is the context to the song. Now, I want you to note right away, where are the enemies of Israel in this context? Nowhere are they. Well, actually, that's kind of a trick question. They're actually closer than you think when you think about within Israel. Evil is coming, and here it is, as a result of their own disobedience. Now, let's get into the song. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, this is chapter 32, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. So we know exactly who's in view there, right? Because they're blemished. They're a crooked and twisted what? Generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not He your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father, and He will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. How's that for a testimonial song? A song of judgment. Let's just pull that out and sing it. The judgment song. But what's the point here? This is to Israel. This is to Israel. If we are to keep reading verse 10, 11, 12, scan them, God's kindness, his tenderness. He suckled them with honey out of the rock. Verse 13, right? He gave them the finest, verse 14, the foaming wine. Then look at the response. If we were to go from 15, I mean, we could just go through so many things. They grew fat, stout, sleek, right? They scoffed. They stirred him to jealousy, verse 16. You were unmindful of the rock, verse 18. This is still to Israel. You forgot the God who gave you birth, And then this, let's not miss this, 20 said, I will hide my face from them, I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God, verse 21. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I'll make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. What's the point here? Who is the enemy in this chapter? Israel is the enemy to God. Israel is the disobedient one. Israel deserves the chastisement of the Lord. And you should say, God's own chosen people? And the answer is yes. God's own people. Are his enemy, And note the restraint. Let's go to verse 26. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. This is Israel. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. This is Israel still in view, and it will be, as we keep reading, but what we cannot miss is what God is calling out in this psalm. The enemies aren't out there. And notice what he said in this song. I'll actually use the enemies, right, as a chastisement against you. A foolish nation, but the judgment is on you. Now let's finish and come up to where Paul is referencing, and I hope we're tracking. For they are a nation void of counsel. This is Israel, and there's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight? Unless their rock had sold them. That's the sovereignty of God. And the Lord had given them up. For their rock, now note this carefully, is not as our rock. There is a group within here, almost speaking Moses, right? Standing almost like third person about that group who has been Israel But our rock, the faithful, our enemies are by themselves. Their vine, the unfaithful, comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of ass. And then this, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand And their doom comes swiftly. These are not the enemies we've had in view at all, is there? In the nation of Israel. The wicked enemy is in the people. Wicked enemies in Israel. They, God's people, were first and foremost disobedient, yet they were God's. This is where Paul takes us. And here we see to be God's chosen, ultimately, purification was and is and will be needed. This is vengeance with an end goal purpose. Verse 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Just not the kind of compassion we thought, right? When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods? Picture him turning to unfaithful Israel. Where are your gods now? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection when judgment comes upon them. This is incredible. Let's continue and finish the song. See now, verse 39, that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, O gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So much here, but I hope you see it. God repays those who hate him even when they're within his own chosen people. Verse 43. He cleanses and atones his people's land. Look at verses 44 and on. Look at this. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. One can imagine the people's response at hearing a song like this. And when Moses had finished speaking all the words to all Israel, he said to them, "'Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law.'" For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going to go over the Jordan to possess. Lots of eschatological overtones here. We don't have time to get into. But to the second generation entering the land, this was important prophecy. Not just exile, but pointing to the future for Israel. The cleansed land pointed all the way to the end, to a purified land And a purified people. This is vengeance, first and foremost, beloved, on God's people, so that they would be cleansed in turn. Now, if that's heavy, just consider this. Ezekiel 16 is a very similar chapter to Deuteronomy 32. And you can just note it in your minds. Ezekiel 16, in fact, has even more graphic language, it compares the unfaithful in Israel to Sodom and so on, exactly the same. Listen to just snippets of Ezekiel 16, and you'll understand what is going on here. Ezekiel sixteen forty two. So I will, in light of all your transgressions unfaithful Israel, I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry with wrath poured out. Look at verse 49. Again, much we could say in here, in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Deuteronomy 32, then, is a song of due vengeance by God on his people for salvation. Again, before we leave Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. God, how are you sovereign? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Back to Romans 12 now. That is the key that we take with us. And church, I hope you see, this is the apostle's point. Why did he go here? Never avenge yourselves. This is God's work, and it is God's work on all people. Jeremy reminded us this morning at the table of the work that is indeed all, for all people. So is vengeance. Not just the unbelievers that wrong us. We fixate on that, don't we, in our flesh. But it is a vengeance on God's own people first. Lest we forget, how soon we forget, I am looking out on a room full of former enemies of God. Do you remember that? We were enemies to God first and foremost. How quick we forget. Beloved, this is appropriate revenge on those he loves first The reference to Deuteronomy is so precise here. Let's not miss it. Let's not shake our fist, our bloodthirsty fist, and say, get them. Let's say, thank you, God, for mercy on us. It's as if Paul says, remember God's revenge, church, on you. And of course, Christian, we know and should very well that we did not, nor will not, praise God, bear God's wrath. God's wrath is not left for us to endure. Is that not right? Why? Because someone else bore it. Christ took the wrath. The wrath reserved, Christian, for you and me, which we will not face, Christ took it. And because Christ bore the vengeance of God, we do not, enemies of God no more. Now I recognize that is only true for some of us here today. I do not know the soul condition of all of you here this morning. But I would be unfaithful to you if I did not say God's wrath remains over those that are disobedient. Like Israel, like Israel, if you claim God, but are not living God, then you are warned. The wrath of God is coming. And it will fall, finally, ultimately, on all of those, listen, outside of the seed outside of Messiah, outside of Jesus. He is the only refuge as the one who bore the wrath. There is no other lifeboat. None. Your staying out of trouble, your good deeds, your professions will not save you. Only repentance from your disobedience and faith and belief. And this placement in Christ will save you. There is no other way to God, John 14:6. Placement in Christ, alignment with Messiah is vital to understand revenge. So we do not avenge as God avenged us in Christ. And actually our posture should be not vengeance, but expectant that God will call other enemies like us and turn them into worshipers. Is that your response to the world today? Not ready with your hose of kerosene on the wicked evil? Or you say, God, please save. So the chorus would get louder of those redeemed that were once enemies. By the way, someone asked me this week about David taking revenge in the Old Testament or the Psalms of cursing. And I have to tell you, I just love those questions. Nothing makes me warmer in Christ to know how active you all are in listening to the Word of God. I love it. So please... Bring the question, especially this is a difficult portion, right? We're dealing with in Romans 12. So let me just take a moment. I know time is always a challenge, but let me just address those questions because they're very good questions. We could devote a whole message on this, but let me just give a few words. I'll try to be clear and brief. David or Solomon, the Old Testament kings, that was one, bringing vengeance on enemies was always, number one, here it is, as God's earthly representative ruler. That was a very different administration with David and Solomon. We talked about a a theocracy, the the kingdom of God, and so on. This was activity of Old Testament Israel, not today. I'm even tempted now to take you through the Shimei account, you know, and Shimei curses, right? And even right to, David gives him a chance, right? He tells Solomon to avenge him, gives him a chance, and Shimei does himself in. Much more we could say about that, but a different time. And we will specifically get at the different administration today in Romans 13 next week. Questions about the Psalms that include cursing for enemies. There were a few of those. What of them? A few things. Secondly, we'd say this: the backdrop to the Psalms is, of course, the Mosaic Law. Listen to a bit of the Mosaic Law. Let me just read you one verse, Leviticus 19.18. In the law, the backdrop to the Psalms, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors yourself. I am the Lord. Again, that is right there in the law. Thirdly, the Psalms were for public, corporate use in Israel. Listen, not private prayer therapy, right? They were public songs for Israel, not your own means of prayer vengeance. With that, the Psalms are divine declarations. Here it is of the things God has done and God will do. And here it is simply, those Psalms, whatever they are, those curses, are what God will do, not we will, what we would do. Fourthly, those Psalms that contain curses or imprecatory Psalms, that just simply means the Curses, Psalms of Curses as they're called, were by persecuted saints, mostly David, by the way, calling on God to bring vengeance to those pursuing him. And not a call for God to equip them to get even. It's not a rally call to other Christians to take up arms and fight back, or really any activity by the persecuted at all. We could look at a number of those psalms, 35, 109, just to name two, and we would see the psalmist calling on God to make things right, to bring judgment. Because vengeance, here it is, is God's possession. The psalmist knew that. And each of these psalms is in line with that. And coupled together, these last two points are the most important, lastly and key, these psalms, penned by men, but are referring to Christ. Turn to Psalm 69 referring to Jesus Christ. This is what we miss so often. This is one of those psalms. Now let me just read the first nine verses. These are very verses, very familiar. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire. There is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim. With waiting for my God, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mightier are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is your sake that I've borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then we could launch into all kinds of curses on the enemies. But stop for a moment. Look at verse 4. Jesus applies that verse to himself in John 15 25. In other words, he says, those are words about me. Look at verse 9, John, the Apostle John applies that to Jesus in John 2, 17, and we can go on. These Psalms, beloved, here's the point, if we look closely, our messianic expressions, and this is so important for the imprecatory Psalms, prophetic utterances, as we saw, that are kept for Jesus. So these curses, if you will, are reserved really and truly for the only one worthy to even utter them. Does that make sense? He is the only one worthy of cursing. He is perfectly good, so he can perfectly curse. What is more, praying these prayers not only perverts their function then, but it completely betrays the reality of Christ now, who bore evil, post-cross, post-wrath-bearing, post-tomb. And now the age of mercy to all nations and enemies is offered. These Psalms pointed forward to the one, the only true one, that could endure and feel and respond to evil righteously. Only a perfect Christ could understand and truly understand what evil is and what an enemy is like in Psalm 69. Listen, we are not perfect or glorified. We know that. We are in Christ, but we're not Christ. So while we may face evil, and we do, we face really what? Another version of ourselves, don't we? That's what we face. Just to a different degree. And that is why we're powerless against evil. It's just another fleshly expression of evil. Back to Romans. Beloved, we overcome evil with good. Not to pray curses of a different age. Let's check our flesh before we want to go to these and just rain it down. On political powers and so on. All right, that correction brings us to the right response in this age. Verse 20, we're almost done. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Look at to the contrary. Do you see that? It highlights how backwards our response is. The apostle is well ahead of us. Feed a hungry enemy. Quench the thirst of an enemy. We need to look at that again, right? We would rather something more fitting. We might want to say, wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute, Yahweh, you don't understand how I've been offended. What they need now is not food, they need justice, is what we would say, wouldn't we? But consider these points in light of our study, and I pray it does come together for you as we seek to live the gospel life in light of our Roman study. Number one, to give our enemy evil in return is actually to cease to live by grace, isn't it? Or by faith. The moment you repay evil for evil, you've stepped out of being a child of grace and living by grace. Is that not true? It's to live actually by sight. And and sight always forgets whose place it is to dispense wrath every time. Secondly, to repay evil is to fail to grasp this is so important the liberation we have from these vigilante actions. We're freed to do good because we've been freed from evil. Maybe you've heard me say this to you, I need to say it to myself, why do we let evil people and evil hijack our joy in response? We do that all the time, don't we? We have bad days because we read a news item. Thirdly, to repay an enemy good is to live godly and wisely. Consider verse 20, look at it again in full, that's taken directly from Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. And by the way, that's in the Old Testament, and that's in wisdom literature, it's as if Paul is saying the whole council of God speaks to this paradigm. Burning coals, by the way, in the Old Testament always referred to judgment. And you say, I thought we were not to repay evil for evil. And isn't that the context of Romans 12? And that would be a very attentive Berean response, right? Yes. And remember, and this is the context now. Think about Deuteronomy 32, so on. We have had burning coals heaped on our head, have we not? Christian, we have. Like Israel will in the end, we have a preview dumping on our head ahead of them. We've just gone before them as the remnant among the Gentiles. The coal has been dumped in judgment on our heads. The difference, as we said, is that we didn't really bear it, did we? We have been judged, we have been purified by Messiah, by the Christ. Who, while we were enemies, shaking our fist and all, while we were enemies, turned out, what did he do to us? He gave us bread to eat and wine and drink for our thirst. And what was that bread and drink that he gave? John 6. Himself. He gave us himself. Amazing. He repaid us good for our evil. He gave us the perfect good himself. And now, Christian, we are simply called to go and do the same. Trusting, like Israel will in the end, that some of our enemies would repent. Now that is the mindset. Do you trust? As you look at evil facing you in the world, are you trusting that that evildoer to you will turn and repent? Is that your heart? Or is it, oh God, inflict vengeance on them? That's the key. Such is the appropriate revenge, and here it is, in Christ. We were enemies. And it turns out the key to responding to evil in this world is recognizing that we were enemies and they were and maybe God in his mercy would turn them from an enemy to a worshiper like he did with us. Do you see that? We close with one last look and read of verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A straightforward command is the theme of this section as we close it and I trust as we wrap this chapter today that theme and call rings loud and clear. Beloved, these verses have taught us much about our appropriate response and God's vengeance and so on. But let us leave this text with one final consideration. If repaying evil for evil is the promotion of more evil, furthering its expansion, then repaying good for evil is how God has empowered us in Christ to kill it. Good starves out evil. Good leaves evil hungry and thirsty. Good overcomes evil. That's the point. I've been very mindful, by the way, these two weeks, that all of this can sound very modern, right? It can sound like a page out of the progressive playbook. Just respond in kindness and all of that. I'm very mindful of that, believe you me. But listen, the book is God's. There's a reason why that economy works. The different is it's a different engine out there. His economy, and only his economy, responding to evil with good, has always been that. Many try to employ God's economy without God. We've said this how many times here. They love the goods. They don't love the God, right? But unbelieving attempts at good fail regularly. Why? The problem is not practice. The problem is position. Once more, John gives us the words of Jesus Christ. John 16.33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world, and thus only those in him, only those in Christ, in Messiah, can truly say, and it is true of them, that they have overcome. And that comfort, as we now look to respond in song, has always been the saints' comfort as they wait Stand with me as we're going to respond in song now. Let me read you Habakkuk 3. The saints of old...